Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope you saw the inspiring story a week or so ago about Tom Moore. Mr. Moore is a 99-year-old World War II veteran who lives in Bedfordshire, England. He wanted to show his appreciation for Britain's National Health Service by raising some money for them. He set out to walk the length of his back garden 100 times before his 100th birthday on April 30th. And so, with an honor guard standing by, in uniform, and using a walker, he did it. He started with a goal to raise 1,000 British pounds, about $1,200. By the next day, he'd raised nearly $20 million. It's a great story, but sadly, those kinds of walkathons, or jogathons, or bikeathons, or jump ropeathons have kind of fallen on hard times. They seem to have reached their peak in 2007. When things crashed in 2008, they began a a gradual decline that still continues, not even counting, you know, this year's issue, which really turned off the faucet. Those events were inspired by people hopeful for a cure, people who may be a survivor or connected in some way to a friend or loved one who had survived or maybe one they'd lost or whatever disease it was that they wanted to see research funded for. A 2018 study by Carnegie Mellon University found that people's giving habits have changed. A 5K walk these days isn't as inspiring as what it once was. These days, apart from the current crisis, of course, uh, it's all about the, what they call the martyrdom effect. That means that in many people's minds, how the money is being raised is actually a bigger stimulation to give than the cause it's being raised for. Are they doing something easy, or are they doing something more uh, sacrificial? The study found that people were willing to give more to a participant who would hold his or her hands in cold water for a minute than if they'd taken a long walk. It's what made the ice bucket challenge so popular. It's a sad commentary, isn't it? But organizations have gotten more creative as a result. The Arthritis Foundation holds a jingle bell run in which everybody dresses up like Santa Claus. The Lymphoma Society has found some success in in their Light the Night Walk, which course, takes place in the dark. Maybe that attitude contributed to the phenomenal success of Tom Moore's garden walk. It cost him something, and people appreciated it. I think maybe I'll take up juggling with fire while we're apart, so when we get back together, I'll be able to risk my life every Sunday morning before passing out the offering plates. Whatever works, right? But here's the thing. In spite of changing attitudes about charitable giving, there's one walk that will never change. The one walk that seems to take more than it gives is the longest walk you'll ever take, a different kind of survivor walk. It's a walk away from the grave of someone you love. Many of you know just how true that is. The two weary travelers in our gospel lesson trudged the road leading from Jerusalem to Emmaus, lost in their own thoughts. They were heading home. Their hearts were were heavy with sorrow, weighed down. The seven-mile journey had begun to feel more like 70. This was their survival walk. It's it's Sunday morning, uh, and the two disciples were making their way home from a pain-filled Good Friday in Jerusalem, and they were hurting to the core. Luke only names one of them, and they weren't part of Jesus' closest 12 disciples. So they may have been part of that 70 that he'd sent out two by two earlier, the group that came back so excited, so, so jazzed about how people had responded to their witness, 
I mean, they could foresee a whole movement coming out of this. But then their hopes for restored Israel had been dashed as they watched their master and teacher suffer and die. And the truth behind the empty tomb was still a mystery to them. What they didn't know was how closely his pain and death would be tied to their own eternal peace. Same cross, different perspective. Same gateway that appeared to lead to so much pain and agony and even death would lead to an empty tomb and new life for everyone who would one day come to believe in the risen Christ. Faith in Jesus is that one unique gateway that leads us from our own spiritual and emotional pain to God's own brand of peace and new life through the forgiveness of sins and the ever-present Holy Spirit. As they walked, the two men talked. There was a lot to discuss. The treachery of Judas, the tragedy of his suicide, the plots and the guilt of the Sanhedrin, the weakness of, of Herod and Pilate, allowing themselves to have been manipulated Uh, into committing what was really nothing less than the murder of an innocent man on Calvary. And then on early this particular Sunday morning, rumors of Jesus' resurrection, the solid evidence of the empty tomb. One of the women, Mary, was said to have seen him, but the account of a clearly hysterical woman didn't really hold much weight. Now, if he were really alive, he would have sought out his disciples. And as far as they knew, he hadn't done that yet. Surely they talked about how he'd healed the sick, how he'd claimed that God was his father, how he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. They would have reminisced about the time he fed 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children with just a young boy's lunch. Now, if he was capable of all that, he was certainly capable of preventing his own death. So why would he just desert them? You know, all his followers, many of whom had left their old lives behind to follow him, How could he have allowed this to happen? Where was he when they needed him? Where did his body go? Suddenly they realize that a stranger has fallen in behind them, unnoticed. You know, deep in their conversation, they really hadn't even heard him approach. They were actually grateful for the distraction. They didn't recognize, or they were kept from recognizing, Luke says, that it was Jesus, risen from the dead, just as Mary Magdalene had claimed. In Mark's version of the story, we learn that he appeared in a, a different form. So to them, he was just another traveler heading in the, in the same direction. Mary hadn't recognized him at first either, remember, until he spoke to her. Now, Jesus is still human. He's still divine, too. But since the resurrection, he's in a glorified state that comes with some perks. He can appear and disappear at will, wherever and whenever he likes. For the next 40 days, he would pop in and out of more than 500 people's lives just to show that that he was real and not a ghost. Jesus asks, uh, what were you talking about so intently? He could see the sadness in their faces. Cleopas answers, you must be the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know about all the things that have been happening there in the last few days. What things, Jesus asks. The things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth. And they begin to pour out their hearts to him. A flood of emotion and the recounting of a tale of broken dreams that betray their deep grief and shattered hearts. Maybe the stranger can help them make sense of it all. They report the entire story of Jesus to Jesus himself. He was such a good man. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He was surely a prophet. He got himself into some trouble with the chief priests. We heard that he was betrayed by a close friend. They arrested him on false charges, tried him in a kangaroo court, and pronounced him guilty. 
He was beaten and flogged to a bloody pulp. To mock him, they pressed a a crown made of sharp thorns onto his head. Then on Friday, they crucified him. Some of our friends took the body down from the cross and laid it in a borrowed tomb. But this morning, the stone was rolled away and the body was nowhere to be found. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. All spoken in the past tense. Their language betrayed the fact that they held out no hope they would ever see Jesus again, at least not in this life. They still loved him. They still believed in him. But like so many people, they, you know, they figured when it's over, it's over. And Jesus had had his run. You can almost feel their pain, can't you? Their sadness, their, their deep sense of loss. That's what Good Friday is like without Easter. Without the resurrection, the cross is nothing but a tragedy, a travesty of justice, a story without a moral, a book without a final chapter. You know, the series finale of your favorite TV show with no hope of renewal. As they pour out their despair, Jesus listens patiently. It was what he wanted. He needed to know what they still didn't know, what they still didn't understand. It would be men like these who were going to take the whole story, including the last chapter, to the very ends of the earth. So they had their say. They told their story. They poured out their hearts and they laid the problem before this stranger. And now he speaks. You are so foolish, he says. So slow of heart to believe everything your own prophets have spoken to you from the beginning. Do you just not know your scriptures or don't you believe what they say? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? It doesn't criticize their doubt or condemn their confusion. That was understandable given the circumstances. What really bothered him was that they either didn't know or didn't believe what God himself had been saying for centuries. And no divinely inspired prophecy could ever fail to come true. And so he takes them back through their scriptures, our Old Testament. He points out and explains to them all the places that were talking about him, all the places that were looking forward to him. Well, if only that conversation was recorded for us. Jesus rolls them out with a clarity they'd never enjoyed before, and he lets the power of their truth speak for itself to produce faith. And what did the scriptures say? That God, in his love, would by necessity send his own son for our redemption. Now, that kind of love is unfathomable to us. But that's really the plain truth of it, understandable or not. But before there was glory, there would be blood. To remove the sins of the whole world would require a bloody, agonizing death, a sacrifice that could be laid at God's own feet. And just as it was necessary to provide a sacrifice, it would be necessary for God to accept it as full payment for all our sin. God's acceptance would be signified by glorifying the one he sent by raising him from the grave and seating him at his right hand in heaven. And Jesus showed them prophecies of the Savior and his suffering and glory. Surely included verses from Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 22, uh, Psalm 16, 22, 27, 34, 41, Psalm 68 and 69, Psalm 109, Psalm 110, 118, Isaiah 7, 9, 50, and 53, Zechariah 11 and 12, and so many others. He was showing them that the cross wasn't an accident, that it was all part of God's plan from the beginning. That's why he sent the prophets and the poets to write about it. 
The bottom line was that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die on that cross. What seemed to them like the ultimate miscarriage of justice was the Father's plan to rescue us from sin and glorify his Son. This Jesus they missed so badly was no victim, led away like a lamb to the slaughter. No one took his life. He laid it down for us. Now what a Sunday school lesson they got. So now they're near the village, Cleopas and his companion's destination. They invite the stranger to dine with them and spend the night because of the late hour. And beside the rules of hospitality, never before they had such a lesson from the scriptures and their hearts hungered for more. Jesus acts like he has to keep on moving, but when pressed, he agrees to, to stay. And he wanted to stay. He always wants to come home with us. But Jesus never forces himself on anyone. So they sit down for dinner and suddenly the guest becomes the host. Right? He took on the role of host. He took the bread. He blessed it. And then he broke it and he gave it to them. And when he did, they recognized him. Now was it the bread, you suppose, that brought it all back? Or maybe they saw the nail marks in his hands. Whatever happened, it was like a veil had been lifted. And at that very moment, he disappears. He didn't get up and just walk out. He vanished. All that remained was his empty seat, but only after they recognized him. There was no more doubting. It was just like Mary said. He had risen. He was alive. His body and soul reunited, but he'd entered a new state in which he could appear and disappear at will. No smoke and mirrors, no trap doors, no magic at all. Just like he left the tomb, he sort of now left their house. The thought was uh, incomprehensible, and yet at the same time, such a blessing, because when Jesus is alive, it changes everything. They hadn't been abandoned. Just when they needed him most, there he was with them. Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us, they recalled. God's word still speaks to us today. It can raise the temperature of even a calloused heart to the point of melting and reveal Jesus. Maybe for the very first time, or maybe as a familiar welcome presence. The two disciples wouldn't get any sleep that night. They get up from the table and they hit the road again, right back to Jerusalem. They couldn't wait to tell the others the good news that Jesus lived. This Sunday was going to end on a very good note. Maybe for some of you this morning, Easter is a tough season because it brings back fond memories of your own or someone you miss very much. Death has touched so many in our own peace family over the years. So that makes coming together like this to hear the story once again, even in this time of online church, exactly the place to be because you're hearing once more how Jesus is alive and that because he is, you won't ever really be alone ever again. He isn't limited by time or space. He isn't even tied to a church building, but rather to the body of believers he's made his own. He's here, but he's also with you, wherever you're watching or listening from, because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Death has been defeated. And because Jesus is alive, it means by faith and trust in him, you'll see your loved ones again. That's a truth that goes a long way toward removing the pain and the, uh, of loss and restoring the, the peace of heart. Because Jesus is alive, everything we teach and believe is true. Because Jesus is alive, then heaven is more than, than, than uh, what if, or an I hope so. 
Because Jesus is alive and all our sins really are forgiven. And we can stand righteous, clean, and pure in God's sight, ready for heaven ourselves. Because Jesus is alive, all his promises are true. Because Jesus is alive, then none of us will ever be truly alone ever again. May God's special gift of peace purchase for you through all the pain and suffering of of his risen son, our Savior, be yours today and always. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that uh, transcends all human understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. And now let's uh, sing about that special peace of God in our next hymn.